Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. Today I want to talk a little bit about ESG and uh, what I think the implications might be for uh, the economy and for the markets. What prompted me to start thinking about this, or at least bring it a little bit more front of mind, are two recent events. One, I received a communication from Yale announcing that vis-a-vis the Yale Endowment, uh, they had adopted five principles regarding investment in companies in the uh, fossil fuel industry, and along with that, Uh, They published a list of 50 or so companies that the endowment would not invest in. It was not every fossil fuel company. Exxon Mobil was not on the list of prohibited investments, but companies in the tar sands and others, many large companies, actually were. And then the second thing that I took notice of is Goldman Sachs made an announcement that they would no longer take public companies whose boards were not sufficiently diverse. No particular details on the exact definition of diversity and what would qualify, but Goldman saying will not IPO companies that don't meet a certain um, Goldman Sachs social standard. The first question in sort of thinking about this is the task of separating the window dressing the puffery, the hot air, the uh, speechifying versus what is substantive. And uh, I've concluded that, in fact, you know, while there is a lot of puffery, and, you know, I suspect that uh, the Goldman announcement could be put in that class that companies will be able to, to meet their diversity standard. It's not, it won't be a huge impediment, a company that otherwise wants to go public and probably could, won't have their access to capital restricted because of something like the Goldman announcement. When it comes to the Yale Endowment blacklist, as it were, and their principles, I think has genuine meat and that uh, in point of fact, Yale might be uh, followed, if Yale isn't in fact already you know, something of a follower, a critical mass of uh, large investors may well have formed with the willingness and in fact the resources and power to effectively make certain companies, uh, pariah companies, certain business models, pariah models, um, maybe even certain whole industries shunned and denied access to capital or put at a significant disadvantage in accessing capital. So as to a degree that makes their remaining in business impossible. Now, I think for something like the Yale Endowment, the next immediate step, which I would predict happens certainly within the next 10 years, probably within the next five, maybe it's happened already, I don't know, 
is the adoption of a general principle that in considering investments for the Yale Endowment, the Yale Investment Management, is to consider the total, quote, social benefit, social return of a particular investment, and not just the economic return to Yale. I think, you know, very effectively, what might have been called or what used to be called shareholder capitalism uh, is now dead, and what survives is legacy effects. By shareholder capitalism, I mean the view that a business, particularly a publicly held business, but business in general, has one duty, which is to um, maximize the wealth of its shareholders. And this really, since Milton Friedman sometime in the late 60s or early 70s, this was, in fact, the operating principle. Of course, it was always qualified by time. You know, so it was the long-term economic wealth of shareholders, with, which embodied you know, more or less an infinite amount of wiggle room. And one could argue that doing right was always in the long-term interests of shareholders and that a uh, moral or ethical shortcut that maybe was legal and maybe resulted in benefits in the short term actually would be to the detriment of the long-term interests of shareholders. So that, you know, argument was made on the one hand, the sort of thought, the maximization of social benefit and the maximization of long-term shareholder wealth never conflicted. A, um, you know, kind of softer argument or statement, you know, might be that while long-term social benefit and long-term shareholder wealth might in fact conflict the corporation or the private business didn't have the skills ability charter or what have you to resolve those issues and those issues needed to essentially be left to the legislature in forming the rules of the game and the nature of the playing field I think within the last several years, the Chamber of Commerce has put forward a statement revising a previous statement uh, in support of kind of shareholder capitalism that the corporation needs to consider in making decisions a wide variety of stakeholders. We hear now within the political sphere that uh, a historic argument that uh, the granting of a corporate charter used to be limited and not a more or less universal right, that in order to get a corporate charter, a business had to be operated in a specific public interest determined by legislative bodies, and that therefore the shareholder capitalist statement of the purpose and duty and obligations of a corporation uh, was a recent phenomenon, ahistoric and wrong. I mean, certainly politicians on the left end of the spectrum universally believe this. 
and now as opposed to you know maybe 10 years ago will uh, vigorously put forward this argument and i would say it's gained widespread acceptance i'd like to consider now two what i believe are decisions slash corporate policy of amazon the first is amazon uh, has publicly made a commitment to be carbon neutral by some date maybe it's 2050 might be as early as 2030 so we have that corporate policy on the one hand and then the other corporate policy at least from reports in the popular press and my perception as a consumer of a fair amount of news slash media slash business slash political reporting my perception is that amazon is not particularly generous vis-a-vis its many many employees i would suggest that in its treatment of employees amazon has the shareholder capitalist framing and mindset they would certainly say you know nobody is uh, forced to work at amazon that our policies and practices result in a huge 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 you know more or less everybody in the united states having access to a tremendous variety of goods at very very reasonable prices and that that's our job our job is not addressing the playing field that exists in the country's labor markets that you know in fact you know while we'll lobby against it that would be the right of governments and other institutions to to impose restrictions and so forth and we think our labor practices are profit maximizing and that's what we should do in the shareholder capitalist framework the argument if one wants to convince amazon that they ought to treat their employees better it would be that customers at some point will protest and rebel the company's reputation will be damaged you know perhaps irreparably and if one looks at the long term uh, those costs will be greater than the benefit of skimping on bathroom breaks for employees or whatever it is in contrast in their carbon neutral decision maybe they frame it within the shareholder capitalist mindset and think that it is over the long term the most profitable thing to do i kind of doubt that i think the board and executives just think it's the right thing to do or that the social approval they'll get from certain parts of society outweigh for them personally the uh, disapproval they might get from customers or shareholders i suspect though obviously i can't be in their minds 
you know, were it to be proven out, and obviously this, you know, is, is completely hypothetical and sort of something that actually, you know, can't be proven out to a metaphysical degree of certainty. But if it were to be proven out that being carbon neutral was detrimental both to their customers and to their shareholders, I suspect that that would not change Amazon's mind, that they're in the stakeholder, broader public purpose, what have you, kind of uh, framework, and that guides their decision making. Now, the shareholder capitalist mindset has not completely died. And in fact, it's likely, you know, at least in certain circles, that Amazon would make the long-term shareholder wealth argument for every decision they make, you know, including things like the goal of being carbon neutral by whenever that date is. I would project and suspect that that's not actually the case. And in five years, lip service to the shareholder capitalist mindset and framework will no longer be um, necessary or employed. There will simply be a set of things that right-minded businesses, right-minded being limited to a certain set of minds, but that maximizing profit won't be what businesses have to do. It will be very much a secondary consideration. And in fact, this will have been very, very broadly accepted, but you know, not only by customers, but also by shareholders. Now, the implications of the shift from shareholder capitalism to um, stakeholder capitalism, for lack of a better label, are much, much harder to discern. It's certainly possible to speculate that over time, this results in less shareholder wealth, lower profitability for companies until lesser degree, higher prices for consumers. But it's not necessarily so that both of those will happen or that one particular mix of higher prices or lower shareholder returns will in fact prevail. It's possible that businesses will extract enough subsidies from government that large businesses, you know, the Amazons of the world, will extract enough in government concessions and competitive advantages of cost and scale that this shift does not result in higher consumer prices or lower returns. My suspicion is at the end of the day, and the day is quite a bit removed from its end, so talking, you know, kind of multiple, multiple, multiple years, more than five, possibly more than 10, that this shift ends with stagflation, limited growth, um, bloated, inefficient, large companies, and is ultimately replaced with a pendulum swing back towards something more like 
shareholder capitalism. In the interim, you know, it's certainly possible that the demand for uh, social responsibility, things like carbon neutrality, etc., produces a quasi-boom, probably inflationary, but that what feels like a boom is created by the shift in deployment of resources in the socially favored directions. The implications across small and large and across different industries are also, to me, highly unpredictable. On the one hand, the demand for the protection, service, fidelity to other stakeholders will in most cases encompass an increase in in costs, both fixed and variable, and barriers to entry for competitors. And uh, this, in fact, almost certainly benefits larger enterprises at the expense of smaller enterprises. On the other hand, in certain, you know, sort of spots, in certain niches for certain businesses that may not have large capital demands, there may well be the ability to avoid the costs um, imposed on large businesses. And that sort of flexibility, nimbleness, maybe in a pejorative sense, evasiveness or evasive capability favors small versus large. Another sort of caveat and uh, limitation on the thought I expressed uh, right at the beginning that there will be pariah companies, pariah industries, pariah business models is some, uh, to a limited degree, we see that currently. I'm thinking um, particularly of marijuana-related enterprises in the United States. These businesses pay substantially more for financial services and do not have full access to the capital markets, given that they don't have direct legal competition. They're profitable enough that that doesn't matter. The same, I believe, would apply to legal sex industry businesses. Again, significantly higher costs for the whole panoply of financial services and availability and restrictions on capital, but limited or very limited legal direct substitutes. So I think the Facebook and Google business models are ethically extremely challenged. That's being sort of seen by both the left and the right. You know, I personally would not own Facebook or Google over the long term because of this risk, almost independent of any valuation, though, though certainly not at current valuation. So, you know, the, um, the question actually becomes, are there no direct legal substitutes that are remotely competitive with their business models that such that they can't withstand the imposition of social costs. And uh, among the many things I do not know is that.
But what I do think is the takeaway I'd like to leave is the conclusion that ESG has moved beyond puffery and virtue signaling rhetoric to a substantive level that will, in fact, have economic and financial consequences, and that we're in the late beginning or the early middle of that process. So it's here for a while, and the implications will be real and felt. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.